he grabbed my hand in church 10 days before their affair started. And our pastor was talking about an upcoming marriage retreat and marriage course and all that. He grabbed my hand, looked down at me and he says, we could, our marriage is so great. We could teach that course. Oh. 10 days. And then he entered into an affair. Well, welcome back again to our SOS Summer Series here at See Here Lab. There's a lot of S's, I've noticed as I'm saying that. I'm your host, Melinda. Really glad to have you with us for episode number two as we continue as we continue to strengthen you this summer in so many important areas. And this episode is about strengthening your marriage and strengthening your singleness. I thought it was really important that we don't just do a marriage show and then we do a singleness show, but that we actually put them together. And when you hear from our second guest, Deborah Folletta, she actually talks about the connection with being a healthy single equals being a healthy married person. But uh, these two women, Stephanie Rourke Jackson, my first conversation, and then Deborah Folletta, incredible women who are going to share with me and you on what it takes to have a flourishing and thriving marriage. And for Stephanie, she's a leadership and development coach with Beacon Coaching and Leadership. And she's going to share her story of living through the pain and recovery of infidelity. Um, Just as a precursor, she'll get there, but her husband had an affair with a woman from their church. And shares just the, her discovering on how to be empathetic in the process. And it'll be interesting because I know some of you will agree with her, not agree with her, be really upset. But this is Stephanie's story. And it's one of great honesty and transparency and commitment and perseverance, brokenness, and really about redemption. And so incredible conversation with Stephanie. Uh, I, I really was just struck about her openness to share this very difficult story. And so I know you're going to really come away learning some things through her story. And then afterwards, I talk with Deborah Folletta, who is a licensed professional counselor who specializes in dating, marriage, and relationship issues, as well as mental health disorders. She's also the author of True Love Dates, Choosing Marriage, Love in Every Season. And she's the host of the Love and Relationships podcast, which is a hotline where you can ask her any questions. And I asked her a lot of questions about what it really takes Uh, to have a flourishing and thriving marriage. And hint, guys, it takes work, hard work, especially in four areas that she's going to share. She really talks to singles in a really great way on how they can thrive and flourish and what their focus and priorities should be. And then she explains, like I said earlier, uh, how to have healthy marriages means being a healthy single. So this really is a great show, great conversations with two incredible women that will strengthen you and your relationships overall. So without further ado, here's my conversation uh, with Stephanie Rourke Jackson on her journey through and with infidelity. Well, welcome to See Here Love for our very special summer series, our SOS series, Summer of Strength. And I love this topic. I love that very empowering Summer of Strength. And I am so glad that on today's episode, I have Stephanie Rourke Jackson with me, a life and leadership coach. And we're going to learn a lot from Stephanie, especially in, you know, really tough subject. Uh, 
you know, for for some people that I know, they've gone through this journey. Uh, for others, they they get, you know, broken trust and having to work through restoration and relationship. And so, Stephanie, welcome to the show. Good to have you here. Thank you. Thanks, Melinda. Yeah, it's and, not the easiest subject to talk about, but I'm glad we're having this conversation. And so, the subject that we're we're, we're going to be talking about, and I'm going to be listening to, is is your marriage and infidelity within the marriage, and the journey that you and your husband and family really had to go through in restoration and forgiveness and healing. And so, I'm I'm glad you're here, Stephanie, because. Um, I can't wait for you to give us tools and tips and wisdom on strengthening not only marriages, um, but how to to trust again and, and how to strengthen those who are really struggling yeah, with trust and, and forgiveness. So let's start off. Let's just get right to it. Let's start off with your story about your how you met your spouse and a little bit about the background of your marriage. Uh, let's start with that first. Yeah, um, it's a cute story. It's uh, it's one of those <laughs> rom com type of stories. Uh, I love rom coms. <laughs> we actually grew up across the street from each other, so we both moved into the neighborhood when we were six. Um, yet, even though we lived across the street from each other, we both went to different schools and hung out with different friend groups um, and didn't actually meet or connect until we were 16 when uh, mutual friends of ours moved in in between and my husband Rob started dating Kaylee um, and I started dating her brother Jason. So we all became, you know, it's like oh. teenagers <laughs> being friends. Well, you, you, when you're a teenager, you know, you just like, hey, if you're not going out, can I go out with her? Can I go out with him? Like, it was a little <laughs> bit, totally. little bit crazy. But <laughs> anyway, just just friends. So we became really good friends at 16 and um, both dated other people for the next couple of years, but remained good friends and just chatted, um, having, you know, curbside conversations and hanging out and that sort of thing. And um, both found ourselves without, you know... Um, without being in a relationship uh, towards the summer of, um, oh, now I'll date myself, 1983. And, oh, uh, you're, just still we turned- you're still young. You're still young, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> before we turned 18. And uh, and just, you know, we just went to movies and, um, and for pizza and walks in the park and then discovered that, whoa, I think something shifted here. I think I like him like him, like him. And, uh, and he was showing a little bit more affection and held my hand and, you know, all of those little sparkly bits. Right. So it was, Mm -hmm. it it became, um, friendship to infatuation to like, are we going to make this thing real and, uh, and commit to being boyfriend and girlfriend. And so we did, and we dated for nine and a half years. Whoa. I know. That's it's crazy. <laughs> Nine and a half years. Now at this point are you like is like at one point are you going, is this actually gonna happen? Like did you doubt at any point in the nine and a half years like we're never gonna get married or that's a long time to be engaged. Uh, that's a long time to date. No, sorry, before- date before you got engaged. Right, right. <laughs> that exactly. is a long time. No, and you hit the nail on the head, Melinda. Uh, we, uh, you know, at that point, we're 24, 25, 26, and we're attending a lot of weddings because our friends are getting engaged and married and 
pretty much at every wedding, you know, I'd be bawling my eyes out. And, and you know, Rob was like, well, what's wrong? It's not my <laughs> wedding. <laughs> you know, you have these silly plans when you're younger, right? I wrote, yeah. dear diary, by the time I'm 25, I want to be married <laughs> and blah, blah. Yeah. You know, all these really fantastical things that, that seem real. And, and in all honesty, they're very romantic and unrealistic. But that was the lens through which I you know, I, I hoped my life to be. And so eventually, um, I just gave him an ultimatum. Like it's not happening. I'm not getting, I'm not getting a great, uh, proposal. There was no, you know, uh, big event or surprise or all of these things that you now see on YouTube. That wasn't our experience. Um, we were driving home from somewhere. It was, uh, it was the fall uh, it was a crappy night, and I, again, just started crying and said, uh, like, hey, this is it. You know, either we're going to get married and engaged, or I'm moving on. And Good for you. That's that's good for you. Seriously, I think at this point, I would be doing the same thing. I might not yeah. wait nine and a half years, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, right. I mean, we were still kind of young, right? But um, right. no, that's true. But I had already, I had already moved out, and I was ready. Like I was on my path to my life again. You know, all those things I documented in my diary. Um, I'm a little bit more type A. I'm firstborn. He's fourth born, so he's the last. He's the baby. He's oh, the a baby. So baby and firstborn. Oh, yeah. yes. Okay. Right. So the di- you can already get an appreciation of our dynamic. Oh, yes. I was really used to giving orders, being the eldest of four, and he was the youngest of four. You know, I was, I, I, I gave the orders. I wanted things a particular way. I, I, I now understand I had control issues. Um, but I, you know, I wanted things in, in a certain way. And uh, and basically, he just kind of took orders. And he was like, oh, that's what we're supposed to do? Like, as if it just sort of dawned on him, you know, nine and a half years of dating, right, I guess we're supposed to go on from here. I'm supposed to move out of my house, like still living at his house with his parents. Um, I had moved out. I was, as I said, I was into my career at the time. My dream was to be in the fashion industry, went to school for it, graduated, um, got my dream job like a month later. So I was, you know, I was, I was living right. And the only missing piece was the husband (laughs) so that, you know, we could buy the house so that we could get on with the rest of the fairy tale. So, um, uh, yeah, just like, hey, is it is it ever going to happen? And he's like, uh, okay. <laughs> and I just sat there and I said, so, so yes. And he's like, guess so. Like, so kind of like, a, well, a what proposal? Was that a semi-proposal-ish, or was that the proposal? <laughs> well, the next, day I, the next day I booked us into Ashley to register for China, so I took a <laughs> proposal. <laughs> Isn't that the next thing that you do? Whoop, okay, let's go. Register for China. <laughs> uh, without a ring, without a ring, it was kind of like, let's do this oh, yeah, no and ring. let's register. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, no ring. Um, and the funny thing was, um, so we went, of course, and he's all timid and scared and like the lights are bothering him and he's got sensory issues and he's like, I can't even be in, why are we even here? I'm like, well, we're picking out China because we're going to get married and we need people to register and we want gifts, right? Um, and he sees two ladies from his church and so he's hiding behind the pool. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, oh my gosh, it's so-and-so-and-so-and-so from my church. I'm like, so? He goes, well, they're going to know. 
what? <laughs> We're engaged. Why would a guy be at Ashley's if you're not engaged? And I'm like, you could be buying a gift for somebody. And he's like, oh, like, and in that moment, honestly, Melinda, I, I should have thought, this is weird. Like, this is mm-hmm. not normal. This is not a typical response to, wow, we're going to, you know, commit and spend the rest of our lives together. And isn't it wonderful? And don't I just want to share this with the world and, you know, do all the the, the typical normal things mm-hmm. like share it with our family, which we didn't do until December. So this was, you know, February, or sorry, this was September. And it took like three months literally for him to like actually tell his parents and then my parents. And I'm like, this is, again, this is weird, but I wanted it so desperately. And this is the thing, I think, when you want something so desperately, you're willing to do everything and anything without using logic, intuition, um, you know, having conversations that are open and honest. So there was a lot now that when I look back, I can see how both of us were had different um, misconceptions, honestly, about life and marriage and relationship and healthy relationships and transparency. And so there was a lot of things that, that, you know, were sort of hidden and that were secretive from kind of the get-go. The get-go. So what would you say then, Stephanie, like if somebody is listening and going, I want to get married, I'm in the beginning stages. What are some key things now looking back that before you did the car proposal-ish you should have done. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like once you get engaged, Stephanie, it's almost like it's too late. You know, and I remember hearing that from a pastor, like, you know, when I got engaged in my first uh, marriage, I remember talking to a pastor going, wanting to go for marriage counseling. And he's like, it's kind of too late because you're already engaged. Like, you've kind of made the decision. So yeah. anything now, you're, you're, you're a yes all the way through and you'll find ways to just make it work because you're engaged. Whereas he's like, I wish I had seen you prior to the engagement so that you could actually have made a decision then without the ring on the finger, right? Without the commitment. So there was some freedom to say, maybe this isn't going to work. You know what I mean? Like, it was a smart pastor. And I was like, oh, shoot. Um, But what would you say, you know, in, in that regard? Yeah, I would say 100% that, you know, when you are thinking about the rest of your life and making such a large commitment, um, you know, such as getting engaged to be married, that you actually have those conversations ahead of time. And we really didn't like we really didn't say, hey, where is this leading? We just kind of assumed that we would be together. But then being brave enough to actually talk about and communicate about what does the next thing look like? Like, are we talking about marriage here? Not being all weirded out by having that conversation, like, you know, the DT, the DTR to find the relationship. You have to be transparent and honest about what you want, what you need, um, where you want to go. What does your vision for your life look like with and, and, and or with with your your spouse um, or without, but just like what are the things that are really important to you? What are the values that are critical? And we never had those conversations. And not to say that we were, you know, seventeen or eighteen. At this point, we were twenty six. Like again, we both were, you know, we, we had lived some and we had dated and we had, you know, we're into careers and we were adults. Like you know, twenty five years to 
to form the brain, but we were already adults and, and it was a normal, natural next progression that shouldn't have been awkward and weird to have the conversation. Uh, yet mm. it was. And to your point, we just kind of assumed the next thing. And, you know, and showing up at Ashley's the next day to get China is ridiculous, honestly. Like, that just shows you my, like, my skewed point of view. It was, it was not clear. I, I was focused on the wrong things. We should have said, okay, the next day, like, what does this really mean? Like, let's talk to some friends. Let's talk to our pastor. Let's talk to our parents and see what they think. But we didn't. We kept it quiet. We kept it secretive. Um, it was in the dark. So now already there's shame on top of it. It's just a mm -hmm. really weird place to start, mm -hmm. um, which is indicative so of many things, you know, it, in our own past mm -hmm. of things that we never talked about with each other that we realized, you know, shame had come into. And we were so embarrassed about certain behaviors and things in our family of origin, things we were exposed to, but we never shared and talked about. So really what you're saying, Stephanie, I think, you know, as somebody's listening, going, I'm starting on that path. I think, you know, the courage and openness and authenticity to share honestly. And if your partner doesn't want to go there or doesn't want to share, that should be a red flag, right? Like, I mean, if you're too yeah. scared to approach your soon to be husband or wife with these issues, first of all, second of all, if they respond in a way that's either like shuts you down or freaks out or doesn't want to talk about it, that should also be another red flag, right? Because here you are going to share your life with this person for the rest of your life. And if you can't even approach or broach these subjects, then there's an issue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that that would be my first tip is to always feel like you should be able to share anything mm -hmm. that is... Um, that, that feels awkward or weird, that you are just unsure about, that you feel there might be some issue with, uh, to be able to have the courage to have that conversation, to talk about the thing that you are either um, wondering about or you've made an assumption about, but to actually bring it out and say, hey, this is where I'm at and I'm feeling kind of weird and this is kind of a hard conversation for me. But, you know, when you didn't do this or you said that, what did you mean by that? Like, where is that coming from? Should I be concerned about this? Tell me more. It's having the brain actually have those kinds of questions and conversations and give each other permission to be honest. Because the other assumption is, if I ask these questions or if I share what's really in my heart that, you know, my boyfriend or my fiance or my spouse is going to react in a negative way and I'm going to cause tension and conflict and, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be difficult and it's going to be, there's going to be anger or there's going to be disruption or there's going to be pain and hurt. There might be. And there should be if it's something that's really important, but yet having, again, the permission to be able to feel the ability to, to trust yourself and your partner enough to say, mm -hmm. this is important, this is how I'm feeling, and this is why we need to talk about it. And if we don't, then we need help. Yeah, that's so and, good. Imagine, Stephanie, if all oh. the people who did that 
or we're doing that now, what that would mean for marriages. I mean, here's the thing. Some people, if they did that, wouldn't get married to this person. And it would right. save a lot of issues down the line. Or this would open up something where, you know, they, they're starting on a really open, honest and, and good place as they go into marriage. And that sets sort of the tone for the rest of their lives together. But, you know, and, I, and I'll be honest, like, I think when I think about my first marriage, if we had had those conversations, I honestly, I'll say this, I don't know if we would have gotten married, mm. if we had had those honest conversations about where we're going, tough stuff that we we're dealing with, values, focus, priorities. Uh, I don't think, and it's, and it's interesting as we're talking about this, what's bringing up to me is like, why was I not wanting to have those conversations? I think this is it. And you're giving me an aha moment. I think it's because I wanted it so badly. I wanted the fairy tale and the marriage so badly that I was willing to overlook very key things in my own life, family of origin stuff. And he was willing to, you know, he was unwilling to look at that as well. And then we didn't want to be honest about those things. And we just wanted to forge ahead and, and get married and start this life together. Uh, and I think it's because I wanted it, the marriage so badly. I was willing, and this is so sad. I was willing to forego a lot of values and things that I wanted for my life and for my future. And I think for him too. And, you know, it is what it is. I think looking back now, you know, uh, 15 years later when, we, you know, we were at that point to make that decision, uh, I think I can say that now. And and I think this is a good conversation to have as, as you're saying this as you're bringing it up. So, wow, that's good. That was good. That was a good moment for me, Stephanie. Okay, um, yes. So, <laughs> so you... Session, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, you go forward with the marriage. You haven't had these conversations. We've done our Ashley thing. How long from Ashley, China, to then when you get married? We got married the next year. Okay, so the next yeah. year, so you have so, a year. Okay. Yeah, so it was about nine months. The engagement was about nine months. Okay. Okay. And it was beautiful. And, and in all honesty, like I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm thinking if we had the bravery and the ability and the skills – to be able to have those conversations, the really important ones way back then, would we have gotten married? And I think because we both knew each other and the essence of who we truly mm. were, we would still be married. Um, we would still have gone through with the marriage and we would have, I think, had a, a more enjoyable from the get-go marriage that was really based on truth and transparency and intimacy rather than, okay, we're married. So then what's the next thing? And going back to your aha moment, which I, I love aha moments because they just like, mm -hmm. like, phew, like there's a spark, yeah. right? Like aha is a for awareness. Oh, I have awareness with honesty that moves to action. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have to do something about now this honest awareness that you have. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it just sits there and it's useless. Um, but we, so we did some marriage counseling, which was a bit of a joke. Um, our our pastor who married us, who's a really dear and great friend of ours, and we love him. 
Um, but, you know, we had been together for so long. So his assumption was, you guys know each other. You'll be fine. Like, you know, if you're still together after nine and a half years, it's great. And so both my husband and our pastor really loved hockey. So really, when we got together for our counseling sessions, it, it was just them discussing hockey. And I kind of sat there. And then also I had the arrogance of thinking, you know, I know this guy so well. I'm making the decisions here. We're going forward. This is my plan. I've got it all laid out. It's going to be fine. Which again, it, like that's part of my sin nature that I've discovered is pride and vanity. So I had a certain image of how I wanted things to look. And again, you know, taking cultural influences and what media says and, you know, my own perspective of what I wanted something to happen along with my family of origin and, you know, um, how we developed and, and grew up and image, image was a big thing, right? Like managing how everybody else perceived you was, you know, I, I, like I was, that was what I was pursuing. <laughs> I mean, I was stellar at making sure that people saw me in the kind of light that I wanted to be perceived in. But yet it was, that was so difficult because I couldn't actually honestly be myself. Because what if people really knew inside what was going on, the struggles that I had, the fears that I had, the inability that I, like, it was just, it was one of those things where you just like, you just be strong, you buckle up, never let them see you cry. I mean, that's, it was the age that we grew up in and also the culture and my family. Like, you know, so I, I had this in me. And so therefore, I never brought up anything that would taint the image of that we weren't the perfect, you know, couple, fiance, um, and then also into marriage. We were that couple where people would come to us and say, I don't know how you do it. You guys are so happy. He loves you so much. You guys are like, have the what's the secret to your marriage? It's amazing. And, you know, arrogantly again, I would be like, oh, well, you know, we're just we're really good friends and we have date night and like all the regular things that you're supposed to do. Um, but yet inside, I was... I, I felt so um, uh, almost misleading because I'm like, but if you really knew, if you really knew what I felt and if you and if you could see into my heart and the fear that I have and how how much I don't even know myself and how I don't know him and I don't I don't really trust what we have, but we just kept feeding it out there. Um, it was that built be on exhausting. Crazy. Yes, yeah. it was. It must have been exhausting trying to like manage all of that too. I mean, the fear, but wow, that would have been exhausting. Yeah, and just some of the, the secrets that we both came into our marriage with that are normal things that you should have just talked about. Like, yeah. I mean, he had a tremendous amount of debt and I didn't really know that. And he went out and, and purchased some musical equipment, fine, he's a musician, and that's that that's normal, but that he kept it from me. Like, it's just like normal things that you should be able to talk about were kept out of fear of what is she going to think, or it's going to cause um, problems or issues, or I'm embarrassed, or I, I can't I can't talk about those things. So, you know, bringing in some debt, bringing in some, and, and just some other things that he had done that I questioned him about that he said, oh, no, 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 like, that never happened. And, and my husband is, I love him so much because he's, he's tender and he's kind and he's a great listener and he's sensitive and he's charming and he's a musician and he's cute, you know, so all of these things are very attractive, you know, to women. I mean, I was attracted to that. Um, 
And so were many of his friends, work associates, um, people in his circle. And because he had this, these beautiful traits that were meant specifically for goodness, they get distorted, right? Especially if you have low self-esteem. Um, my husband also has ADHD, which he didn't become aware of until his adult life. But that plays huge into the way you think about things, into the way that you um, handle things about your risk, like your behaviors, your impulses. It's, it's a tremendous thing to know about and then be able to have strategies to help you cope. But when you don't know about it, you just feel like right. you're weird and broken and stupid and, you know, dumb and what's wrong with me and all of the shame on top of it because, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, who knew what ADHD was? It's just, it was just something that right. yeah. some kids had that you, you know, medicated and doped them up. That's not true. I mean, this is, this is a, a right. neurotypical right. disorder, right? There are, there are consequences and complications with it, but there's also so much beauty with it. So I'm telling you all of this just right. to give you sort yeah. of a background as to his personality and the things that he put out there. And then also without knowing, um, and I'll just really mm -hmm. jump way ahead, but you know, uh, when, when he finally did confess of his infidelity, um, and it was, it was almost so, um, it was so shocking to both of us, even though he made the choice. I mean, he, you know, he knew what he was doing. It wasn't, and, it wasn't and just, just Stephanie. So how long were you married before this, this moment, like the moment that, you know, the infidelity occurred? How many years um, into the marriage? Right. Yeah. So he confessed of his affair, um, August 25th, 2011. So we were 19 years into marriage. Three so kids 19 later. 19 years into marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And wow. again, shocking, like absolutely shocking. This wasn't supposed to be us. You know, infidelity worming its way into our marriage was not something that we signed up for. It's not what we hoped for. And again, no, I don't think honestly that that anybody really determines when they're sharing their vows and looking into each other's eyes the day that they're getting married. That yeah, one day, you know, if 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 you're not meeting all my needs, or if I feel like I you know need something else, I'm just going to break all of these vows and. Uh, and go, you know, find pleasure and happiness somewhere else. I don't honestly think that people actually decide that then. And when I asked okay. him, you know, how did this happen? And why did it happen? He was kind of just as shocked as I was. And um, his really? was different than mine. Very, very different than mine. But, you know, here's the thing. He said, I didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I'd love to have an affair today. It's not like you go looking for it. But then I thought, well, what did you do to prevent it? Right. So that's the question I was going to say. It's like, if you're not looking for it, how does it still then happen? Right. So how do you protect yourself against it? Mm -hmm. And this was such a revelation for us to have this whole, like we had this long discussion about it because now we both help and support, you know, other marriages. He speaks mm -hmm. to guys groups. Um, I speak to women about it. But that was such an important 
uh, question that I asked him, and, and not one that is easy to ask, is like, well then, dude, what were you doing to protect yourself and me and our marriage mm. against this when it's so possible? And the fact that anybody ever says, you know, it's never going to happen to me, I would never do that. That right there is a recipe for disaster. I think as humans, mm. we all need to recognize our weakness, um, our sin nature, our, um, you know, our temptations and say, I don't ever want it to happen, but certainly I'm capable of it, you know, but, but with a plan in place and having, you know, accountability and saying, yeah, it's possible. I don't want it to happen, but of course it's possible. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, um, reserved for because I'm a Christian or because I've been married for this long or because I don't want it to happen, that it's not going to, you know, come across my pathway. It, it can. So, Stephanie, do you think, yeah, do you think that should have be honestly a conversation prior to getting married? Like you actually yeah. sit there and go, here is a protection plan to ensure that we don't have an affair or that we don't, we're not faced with infidelity. Like, I know that sounds so yeah. crazy, but I've never had some pastor ever in premarital, you know, counseling ever say that. And by the way, P.S., here's the plan to ensure or this is in front of you. Do you think it, it yeah. should be like that? Hmm. I seriously do. Um, I, I really, really do now looking back. And it's not like pastors are unaware of the fact that, you know, um, or, or ministers or whoever, whoever's counseling you pre-marriage that they haven't ever heard about, you know, a, a couple or a marriage that has encountered yes. infidelity. They do. Right. So, so, so being upfront, and again, this is the, the, the awkward and weird conversation is just like, it's possible in your marriage. At some point, you know, you might be faced with because of the stress that's going on, because of kids, because of scheduling, because of all of the, the overwhelming factors that, that, you know, that are part of marriage. Um, you, you have a job, uh, there are new people at your job, people are going to praise you, they're going to, you know, give you accolades, they're going to become your friends, you might go out for dinners, you might have too much to drink, um, you know, somebody might be having a difficult time in their marriage, they might be broken, you might hear personal stories that you shouldn't really be hearing, how are you going to protect yourself step away from it and say, no, that's not for me. Because it feels it, it feels like you're being unkind. If somebody kind of not not necessarily comes on to you, but starts sharing very personal, intimate details about their own marriage or their, their own brokenness, and you feel like compelled to either want to help or support them or come alongside, suddenly that's a doorway into an, an emotional experience that shouldn't be shared necessarily by right. a man and a woman, right? If you're right. Con so if that you find yourself consoling somebody else about, you know, their own personal um, marriage or relationships and you're getting too close and too connected and you find yourself, mm. you know, thinking about this person and wanting to help and support them from the goodness of your heart or because they're your friend and yet right. feelings start to develop you need to be aware of that right away. And I said to, you know, to my husband, like at the point where you sort of felt like you were crossing the line, 
shouldn't you have come to me first and said, hey, hun, listen, this is a really weird and awkward and hard conversation for, for me to have, but I think that I have feelings for another woman and I don't want it to get in the way of our marriage. So I want to have a conversation or I think we should consult our pastor or go to a counselor or something like that's a brave conversation. Not that many people will, are willing to do that. I was about to say, I don't think a lot of people would do it. And, and, and no. maybe there's a, there's reasons, Stephanie, either they don't feel safe with their spouse, which is a whole other issue. Like if you don't feel safe with your spouse to say that, then there's a problem there. And also I think it is for yourself because a lot of people would say, oh, I don't want my spouse to think of me that way. But if you have a healthy marriage, then that's a really important conversation to have before anything happens. I mean, so my question then, Stephanie, is is that what happened with your husband? When he started the affair, was it an innocent conversation like that with some like someone? Is that is that how it yeah. was opened up? Yeah? Yeah. That's that's exactly how it was. And that's our experience. So I'm not saying every affair starts that way. And I'm not saying right. that every marriage is gonna encounter it the same way. I mean, we're all different people different personalities um, and, uh, and, and, you know, different sensitivities, but that was how theirs started. And, and to be honest, I, you know, there were some red flags and I should have been more courageous to confront that right at the get go. Um, but in the past, um, you know, we did experience something like that, uh, you know, 10 years earlier. And I did confront him. I gathered up the courage and I thought I was going to vomit when I said, listen, I think something weird is going on. You're, you're acting strange. Um, there's behaviors in you that are not normal. Um, your hours are, are really weird. You're working a lot. Um, I'm smelling perfume. Like there were just so many signs. And so I finally got the courage up. And I thought, well, we know each other, we trust each other, you know, we'll work this out, all of that sort of thing. And I and I confronted him with it and bold face, blatant lie. Honey, nothing is going on. I love you. Nothing is going on. Please trust me. So what are you supposed to do as a as a wife who wants to trust and yet feels this discord, right? There's tension inside that's like Something is not right, but yet if I continue to nag or bug him or bring it up, then who am I? I must be a horrible wife. You know, I, I have to, to be able to trust him. If I don't trust him, then what do we have? And so I kind of bought into that lie. Um, and I'm, I'm backtracking a little bit, but, yeah. you know, this did happen earlier on in our marriage where there was an emotional connection. And, um, but, and he wasn't, he wasn't forthcoming, right? So there were some half truths, just enough to be able to feel like I can alleviate the guilt in myself and say, well, yes, you know, I, I am, um, becoming closer with a work colleague, but, you know, she's going through something and she really needs my help and, and I'm the only one. And I'm like, okay, well, I know you're a nice guy and you're very kind and this is part of who you are. That's part of why I love you. You're sensitive and, yeah, I mean, sure, you, you should go and help. Mm. No. no. So I struggled for about a year thinking I was just a terrible person, a terrible person who didn't trust, who had real issues, but yet remember my own, you know, my own um, 
arrogance and my own upbringing and my own like definition or identity is I'm a strong person. I can handle this myself. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anybody's help. We don't need and to you didn't tell anybody. Friend. You didn't tell anybody. Nope. Nobody, not even my best friends where, see, I think that that's wow. the thing where we hold ourselves in the darkness of secrecy and we are trying to battle all of it ourselves. Mm. We are going to fail. We are going to basically, um, in the interior, we just like, we just shove it all down to the basement. Mm. Why would I bring this up? That's not necessary. It's just going to make things worse. We bring it down to the basement. What does it do? It just goes there and lifts weights. It gets stronger. So I already started building this resentment and bitterness and mistrust. And, and so we were slowly drifting and slowly dividing. Um, and then there was a bit of a shift and something happened and bought a new house, moved to a new neighborhood and everything seemed great again. We didn't have to talk about it. Oh, it's done. It's in the past. Let's just move on. Let's just move forward. Let's not go back. Um, I don't think we can move forward until we do go back and resolve any kind of issue that we are curious about that didn't sit well with us, that really has now tainted um, a portion of our um, intimacy. And so that had already, it was already there. The seed was already there. And because you we know, didn't Stephanie, actually confront it. Yeah. Do you think too, when you say that, I, 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 you know, even speaking for myself, when I'm thinking back to my first marriage and, and a lot of people listening, it's probably a point where it's like, oh, it's just too much work to go back. Right? Like, let's just band-aid this, the problem by yeah. a new house, some good renos, moving forward, new things, and let's not worry about that because that's so much work. And I just Another emotionally, kid. Yeah, right? And it's emotionally, oh, yeah. I just can't go there. You can't go there. So let's just go forward. And I wonder how many marriages are like that. It's just, it, it's, it's too much work from the past. And now we're just going to keep going and then shove down to the basement, shove aside because – that's going to take us months, maybe years of work to unravel, unpack all that stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm thinking about that so going, oh many. man, oh man, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I mean, it does. And, and here's the thing. It's a slow, slow drift. It is a yes. slow dissension on that slippery mm. slope. Right. And what you don't take care of in the moment will only progress if it's important. It's only progressing and it's getting bigger and it's snowballing. And whether or not it's experienced externally, it's definitely felt internally. And it does take over so many areas of your life. You know, other relationships suffer because of it. Um, the, the, just the health and wellness of your own emotional, spiritual, physical well-being gets um defective and and so now looking back like you know it was it was just it was just a matter of time right it's just a matter of time before it actually happened fully because because of of playing around with the fire and noticing you know in, in my husband's experience noticing the the sort of lift that he got when he was around you know other people who would who would um stroke his self-esteem or would tell him that, you know, he was, he was great. And, and although I definitely complimented my husband, I used a lot of tactics to kind of keep him down and disrespect him because I felt like that helped control 
our relationship that 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 felt like I had power and it was misused oh, and it wasn't wow. fair. But you know, I I did things that, he, but he didn't have a voice. I didn't let him have a voice. I mean, our, we, you know, we can know our love languages, which is awesome. Like his is physical touch mm-hmm. and quality time, and mine's acts of service and words of affirmation. We can know our love languages really well, but we did not know our fight language, nor did we allow ourselves to be able to have a fight language, so that we could resolve conflicts of tension, emotional strife, um, physical, like the way that we parented or the way that we kept the house or the way that we just communicated or what we, you know, the roles in the family, like all of those things, financial aspects of it. If we weren't coming into truth and transparency in all of those areas of our marriage, then of course we were ripe. We were fertile ground for something else to come in and disrupt and take us like away. Hi, this is Becca, the associate producer of See Here Love, interrupting this great conversation to let you know that there are more shows and great content and blogs at seeherelove.com and our YouTube channel. Content to help you and give you tools as you care for your mental health, relationships, being single, being married, family issues, your self-confidence. We're here for you to help you find joy and small wins in your everyday as we lean into relationship with Jesus and intentional community. So check us out at seeherelove.com. And if you want to help us keep making this kind of content, you can donate to us at seeherelove.com slash donate. And really, to keep Melinda and I working and with jobs, donate. And finally, if you found this episode inspiring, please take a moment to share it with someone who would enjoy it and to rate and review our podcast. It really helps. So this makes sense. You set this up, you know, quite honestly and beautifully in the way of I'm, I'm seeing the next step. Right. Like you're, you're setting it all up, Stephanie. And he then, you know, chooses to then have this affair. Uh, and again, he's not here to speak ab- about that and, and, you know, what he, what he felt and, and all that. So but for you, for your side of the story, he has this affair. How long did the affair go, go on until he finally came to confess to you? Three months. So it was three months and you had no idea. At all, or did you have any inkling? No idea. No, you had no idea. And what would he say, your husband, uh, through that three months? Uh, I mean, going through it, is there guilt? Was there this euphoria of like it's secretive, it's fun? Like what what's happening on on his side? So you don't know, and he's going three months having this affair behind your back. Obviously, mm-hmm. can you speak for him in that? Like what was what was he what's what's going on there with him? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. <laughs> <Everything that you laughs> thank said. you, and, thank you, thank you. Okay. Yes. Um, just, just so that we, you know, we're all, this is very transparent. He knows I'm having this right. interview today. Um, anytime right. okay. that we talk about, you know, infidelity in our situation, we discuss it with each other first. So I am not good. saying anything that he is not aware of. Okay. Um, and he That's does, good. I do, I do have permission to, you know, to share, but I, I don't want to share like, his part of the story but of course those are questions that I asked um you know how did you feel while while you were doing this I mean how did you give yourself permission to blatantly lie and to tell me that you were going somewhere when you weren't and and all of the so when you're in in an affair it's in you know in my mind it seemed like he was off having like the time of his life it was so exciting and so beautiful and freeing and you know he got to do his thing and it was pleasurable and all that and he's like 
If that's the story you're making up, I can assure you it was not like that. Of course, there were moments of excitement, but they were very rapidly, um, you know, the next, the next thought or feeling was fear. Fear of being found out, guilt and shame of doing something that is not like him, but being compelled and stuck, stuck in it like he couldn't get out. Um, it, it was overly stressed. Work was was terrible situation for him. Um, trying to manage and deal with the family was terrible. He, he avoided being around us. Um, he hated that because he loves his kids and, and likes, you know, likes to be family and, and loves being a husband. And yet he felt that obviously, you know, doing, he was in this duplicitous place, which felt so, um, terrible, yet also had the intrigue and the, um, you know, there was arousal and there was, there was deception, which can be very pleasurable and exciting and, and also for somebody with ADHD, you know, you have a dopamine rush and that's what your brain needs because you're deficient in dopamine. So anything that causes a heightened sense of awareness, a heightened sense of like feeling alive and feeling that, that helped him to feel sort of known and understood and a sense of belonging and a sense of self-esteem and all this kind of higher level self was coming out of that but it was yet it was it was in the shadows it was like an it was it was in the dark so even though the experience was all of these kind of wonderful feelings they were masked by you know but it's wrong it's just wrong which is why you know it wasn't in the light he didn't come forward and say hey guess what you know i'm doing this um it, they you know most of the time was just them managing keeping it secret and, and then worrying about, you know, being found out. And because it was, you know, it was in the church, <laughs> um, you know, they're both uh, on the worship team. And so I had to, you know, try to, to manage God. <laughs> Where are you in all of this? Like when, when he finally um, confessed, and it wasn't, I would love to say that, you know, he just came to the end of himself and said, this is, this is not right. I gotta, I gotta just suck it up and, uh, and, and confess and be honest and let the consequences, you know, lay where they may. But it wasn't like that. It was, uh, they were caught and they were told, you have to, <laughs> you have to, at the same time, um, you know, tell your wife, tell your husband. Um, and then can I continue with sort of the, how the church responded? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just wait, wait yeah. one second. So, so they were caught, and then so if they weren't caught, do you believe it would have gone on longer? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because it was so enmeshed. It was so difficult for them. As he said to me, they they tried a couple of different times to, like, that's it, we're done, this, this is unsustainable, we can't continue, we're not looking to, you know, break up our marriages and run away together. That wasn't the point. Um, but I think, you know, chemicals that are released during intimate relationships, um, and this is pure science as well as scriptural, um, you know, we, we bond. Like the two shall become one. We bond. There are chemical releases of oxytocin and serotonin, and these are very, very um, strong, you know, natural drugs that connect us. 
and almost tell us like, I can't survive without this in my life, whatever that is. It could be, you know, it could be whatever addiction it is. Um, and for, for them, for him anyway, it was a, it was a physical addiction, um, that, you know, when, when we went to counseling, um, we realized that early exposure to pornography was part of the problem and keeping that secretive, but having this heightened arousal around, you know, pleasurable images and, and, and sex and what it does and the power of that. Um, so that's one of the things that kind of kept them there. So I do, and he does think as well, it would have been hard for them. Eventually, um, the plan was, you know, it's going to end and we'll just take it to our graves. That was the plan. Um, and, and to me, that's heartbreaking because how can you live the rest of your life with this deep, dark secret? Something that's so, so, um, it's not just a little, it's not just a little white lie. It's a big, heavy duty black lie. And to decide and determine that you were going to take it to your grave, you know, that's just, that, that, that blocks all intimacy and trust issues. And then, you know, you're susceptible for it to happen again. Again, let's go back to like, how do you protect yourself against it? You have to talk about it. So in my mind, I got this huge revelation from God while I was, you know, praying like, Lord, how does this happen in the church? Why didn't you strike them down? How did you allow it to go on? Like, didn't you care that, you know, how could they preach? How could they worship? How could they lead a team? How could they be like all of these things while this terrible sin is going on in the background? Like, you know, Saturday night together, Sunday morning at church, like what the hypocrisy was driving me crazy. Like I had, I had some good old chats with God, like, this is not right. How do you let this happen? Mm -hmm. If you're in control, why did you, first of all, you know, let it happen and allow it to happen and continue. And I really feel Melinda, like God gave me this vision of like just two big, huge bright lights. It was just like, because there were many times that they had the opportunity to get out and they didn't take it, right? Like scripture says, like, hey, you could choose the path of sin, but there are many options to get out. God gives you many opportunities to get out, to confess it, to, to clean up your act, to be able to resolve it, to, to have restoration. And yet they didn't. And I feel like these two big God lights just came on and went, you and you, that's it. You're out because you're way too important in my kingdom. I'm not going to let this continue to happen. And that revelation to me just gave me the, um, it gave me the confidence to be able to say, I think this was meant for something way bigger than just pain in our lives and something that we had to get through. We're going to use this pain and this situation as part of our ministry, you know, to be able to help others. Well, First and, and all, Stephanie, that's what I was going to ask you, because I think in, in that I was going to ask you, because there's probably people listening going, and you stayed with him, you know, like, I think mm -hmm. that's sort of the next step of the story. It's like, you know, I think just you able to share and your husband able to share so honestly and courageously about your marriage and story and the affair. But I think for many, mm -hmm. it's like, at that point, it's justification, quote unquote, to leave to be like, I'm out. And yet sure. you stayed, you stayed, you both yeah. stayed. I mean, you both stayed within yeah. this. So I think that's the next, you know, kind of topic here on, you know, when we're talking about summer of strength and strengthening, 
It's like, mm-hmm. what and how and why did you choose to stay? You yeah. know, after that deception and how do you stay when there is a sense of like you abandoned me and you you made this choice against me and our family mm-hmm. and yet choosing to stay and build trust and restoration and forgiveness. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So early on, um, someone told me, you get to stay and be part of his redemptive process. That was powerful for me. Um, And yet at the same time, I thought, I didn't choose this pathway. This is so unfair. This is so unfair that now that he's confessed and was willing to do all the things to fight and to make it right. And he had sincere remorse, to which I've never seen another human being expressed Mm. um, to the point of, like, you know, uncontrollable sobbing and immense regret and and willingness to to really do all of the things. And he took... um, personal responsibility, never, ever blaming me, never pointing the finger, never saying, well, because you did or you didn't do or you were like, and, you know, that's why, what choice did I have? You know, you sort of forced me. I was looking for that. I would come to him with everything. Like, what did I do wrong? Was it this? Was it this? Was it this? Because I wanted to be able to fix the thing that I did to cause him so that I didn't have to worry about it happening again. Because if I could control, you know, who I was and what, what I did and know I don't, if I don't do that ever again, it's never going to happen. And and I was kind of, I was a little bit, um, you know, perturbed that he kept taking all the responsibility. And I'm like, no, but if you do that, then, you know, what can I do in order to protect myself and to protect our marriage from this happening again? And that was a whole, you know, that was my own journey, um, which I'm really glad to have gone on, but it was difficult because now we needed help. So let's go back to like when we didn't need any help because we were the perfect marriage and perfect thing. And why would we need help? And, and in fact, to right. be honest with you, he grabbed my hand in church 10 days before their affair started. And our pastor was talking about an upcoming marriage retreat and marriage course and all that. He grabbed my hand, looked down at me and he says, we could, our marriage is so great. We could teach that course. Oh. 10 days. And then he entered into an affair. Who says that? And I truly believe that he believed that. But yet again, it was part of our arrogance of not being willing to ask for help and to talk about the real things that were going on below the surface. So he confessed, um, you know, I, uh, it was just like a regular Thursday, August 25th, youth group just left my house. He was at band practice. He came home. I poured a glass of wine. I was like, woohoo, date night. Kids are all at camp. Let's like have date night. And he's like, uh, <clears throat> no. And I knew in an instant something was terribly wrong. And wow. three thoughts flashed through my mind because his mom had been really sick. And so it was like either his mom died he's having an affair or he lost his job. And so it was like, I didn't even give him time to answer. I'm like, is it your mom? No, you're having an affair. Yes. Oh, what? And I just come back from Shoppers Drug Mart. So I had like tied in my hand and a carton of milk and I whipped it at him so hard and lots of profanity and lots of anger. I didn't know I had so much rage in me, but I do. Um, 
And I just broke every wedding picture. I threw it at him. I yelled. I screamed. I everything. And then I thought in my mind, in my logical self, should I go? It was midnight. I'm like, should I go somewhere? I'm going to go to my friend's house. I'm like, well, what am I going to do when I get there? And then also because I'll have to jockey his cart out and then take mine out and then put his back in. And like all of these like stupid things, like what am I doing? Like, you know what? Forget it. This is, I'm going to bed and laundry was on our bed. And so we both went upstairs and we folded laundry like a normal thing after just delivering this massive devastating news where my heart was shattered, but I was in so much shock and so numb that I was like, no, I I don't really think that this is what's happening. Like it's something different, right? So you start to the grieving process about bargaining and like, this is all going on in my mind. I fold the laundry, put it away. He's exhausted. He goes to sleep. And I'm like, really, dude, you can do this? How do you do that? Like, this is the most disruptive thing I've ever experienced, we've ever experienced, and you're sleeping. But he was terribly exhausted from all the stress over the last three months. Um, and uh, and so in the next morning, I didn't sleep at all. I picked up my phone, what to do after, you know, when you realize you're, have, you're, you're having an affair or, you know, what to do after an affair. And I was like... I'm looking this up. I'm looking this up. Who is going to believe this? This is terrible. So our pastor came over the next morning. We sat with him, had a pot of coffee. He handed us a card and said, I really um, encourage you guys to go for counseling. And I'm like, counseling is for weak people. Hmm. Counseling is for people who can't do it on their own. Counseling and therapy is is for people who have problems and issues. Wow, that's us. That's us. How dare I? Right? Right right there. Right, and yeah. he just said, he said, I'm willing to do everything, everything and anything. And I'm like, okay. And it was honestly, the scariest moment of my life was to cross over the threshold of a counselor's office. I'm like, oh, what if somebody sees us here? It was like the moment in Ashley's, right? What if somebody sees us here? I'm like, what if somebody sees us in counseling? You know, something's wrong. Yeah. And we're doing something about it. That's what he said to me. We're doing something about it. Yay us. How brave. And I'm like, oh, okay. So suddenly, you know, he he's becoming this guy. And I think he really just wanted it all out. Like once the vomit starts, you want it all out. Like, you know, <laughs> you're retching. You're just like, just get it all out. I want it all out because I want to be able to understand why this happened, how it happened, and how we can prevent it. Or at least make a, a plan for what's going to happen next. So we did. We diligently went twice a week. We were in counseling for two years. So if people want to know what to do, you get really honest about it. You go to counseling. You bring all of your honesty there. You mediate. You yell. You scream. You talk about it. If you're a person of faith, engage your pastor or your minister or your mm-hmm. rabbi. You know, bring that component into it. Do things together. Pray for each other. We never prayed for each other. We would say grace, you know, at dinner and we would pray for the kids, but we never prayed over each other, with each other, for each other. We cried together. We hugged each other. We yelled and screamed. We actually had conflict. We stayed in the pain of the conflict until we could work it out. We got tools from our counselor about how to fight properly. We went to recovery. We went to a recovery group. He was there for four months and uh, was learning all kinds of things about himself. He came home one night and he's like, do you know what codependency means? I'm like, I think so. I go, well, I'm codependent. 
You know, and he had this list. He's like, I checked off every box on this list. Who knew? It was like, he was so excited to be learning about himself and to bring it to me. And I was just delighted that he was sharing these intimate parts about himself and not afraid because the joy of discovering who you are and the curiosity and the confidence and the strength that you're building in yourself when you're doing these things, it's kind of like, you know what? I want us to stay together. I believe we're supposed to stay together. I believe that we're going to be stronger for it and that this is God's plan for us. But hun, if you need to leave, I'm not going to keep you here. Right. Because I'm so learning Stephanie, do you think that important. many marriages that have broken down because of an affair could have been actually saved and salvaged if I mean, I guess there's many reasons, right? I mean, because there's some people who are just like, my spouse didn't really want to work on it. Like, this was their way of going, getting yeah. out. <clears throat> and then there's are some yeah. who are like, if we actually had just turned to each other and said, I'd, I'd work on it versus reacting, we probably would have stayed together. I mean, I know there's I've many heard, stories, I've heard both. But I've heard yeah. both. Yeah, I have two. I've I have both. Two. And I think ours, and, and believe me, ours wasn't like, okay, day one, let's do all the things to keep us together. And we just kept, it wasn't a trajectory like this. It wasn't a pretty lineup. It was mm, right, right. at least three major times I was like, that's it. I'm out. I don't care. I want a divorce. And, and I also felt, but then there was the shame of that, right? Because he was willing to do the work and he was being open and honest and he was changing. And then... If I was the one who said, you know what, I can't handle this. This pain is too much because the, the, the thoughts are relentless. The intrusive thoughts, the images, the disgust, like all of it. It was, it was like second after second after second. I remember honestly having like one period of time where it was about 15 minutes where I didn't think about it for 15 minutes. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't think about it. And I was so delighted that I had gone 15 minutes without a thought about it and that was like the first time that I recognized okay I think we can progress but my shame was now okay six months later a year later two years later when I was like I said I can't I'm out I'm out even after doing all of this work I wanted out but then I thought oh great so now I'm the bad guy right I'm gonna break our family I'm gonna wreck our kids because he's doing all the things I'm gonna be seen now as the bad guy, as the villain, the one who, you know, left her family and left her marriage after he was trying so hard to do all the things. And he made new promises. And, um, and actually, <laughs> can I tell you this? Cause this is, this is such mm -hmm. a beautiful, um, restorative act that my husband did. He did so many brave things. Like you want to know like how we, you know, he, he gained back and earned back trust. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, I did not trust him, and, and rightfully so. He needed to earn it back. It didn't mean that I didn't love him or that I wasn't willing to do the work, but I didn't have to just trust him in order to forgive him even. I could forgive him and still not trust him because I had absolute um, a reason to not trust because I had been fooled so badly. But in, in part of the restoration process, um, and, and to cover over a really ugly date, the date that, you know, their affair started, which by the way is, was my birthday. Yay. 
Um, And so now I thought, oh, great. Now I have this anniversary that, you know, I can't even celebrate. But he totally restored that. We had gone to Florida for my sister's wedding. And it was on the long weekend, which was my birthday weekend. And her her wedding was the day before. Um, So that was kind of an interesting mess. But um, and beautiful. The same was brutal. But um, after the after <laughs> the wedding, like it was actually I think it's a Glennon Doyle thing, so I don't want to take it. Um, okay. <laughs> but a- after the wedding, uh, we were in Clearwater, and uh, and the, the the kids were you know in their hotel room, and and he said, let's let's go for a walk. It's your it's your birthday. I said, let's go for a walk on the beach. I'm like, dude, it's twelve thirty, you know, at night. And he's like, no, I just I just really want to go. I just want to be with you. And he held my hand, and. Um, he got down on one knee, and gosh, it was so long ago, but it's still so emotional. And he had a new gold ring made with ten diamonds in it because we were coming up to our twentieth year anniversary. And um, and he just he got down on one knee and he he handed me the box and he said, "I didn't do this right the first time. I've made some terrible mistakes. I wasn't the husband I should have been. I wasn't the husband I wanted to be, and I wasn't the husband you deserved. And I love you so much." you marry me and uh wow he said yes <laughs> and um an interesting um we we did celebrate our 20th year anniversary with a vow renewal in front of a hundred friends and our family most of whom knew our situation our story but in year one of our marriage god gave me this vision that we were going to renew our vows on our 20th anniversary and I shared that with my husband. I'm like, you know what? We're going to have a big party. It's going to be so great. When when it's our 20th year anniversary, we're going to renew our vows. And he's like, okay, whatever. It's year one for him. He's like, <laughs> especially if you have ADHD, there's like two times now and not now, right? It's like, that's not now. So I'm not good. Sure, hon. Whatever you like. Yeah, that sounds great. And that our marriage would be so broken and fall apart in the 19th year was such a God story of like, you can do this. You're going to have to have a lot of resilience and a lot of determination and a lot of rebuilding, but I'm here right with you. And that was how my faith grew. That was how I learned about myself, about the things I needed to let go of. And we actually had that 20th year vow renewal anniversary. It was the most beautiful thing. It wasn't a big party and the big fantasy that I dreamed about, you know, 19 years earlier, but it was truthful. It was honest. It was beautiful. It was intimate. It was just the most glorious thing and surrounded by our family and friends who embraced us and encouraged us along the way. And that was one of the elements, honestly, Melinda, that within the church, our church never gave us, or at least we didn't perceive it, to ever be a shameful thing. They were rooting for us and the other family to restore, to reconcile, to stay together, to be, um, you know, to to have a strengthened marriage. Um, We were welcomed back. We, We decided to leave because it was just a weird situation. You know, I didn't want to go back there where they were. And, um, but it wasn't like we were told we had to leave. Um, we were given, you know, uh, elders in our church to pray over us, to be with us, to keep accountable to, um, to be there for us at 1 a.m. 
you know, people came and delivered food to us. They offered to babysit our kids, to give us time away. Um, anything we needed, they were right there for us, you know, with, with so much encouragement, so much love, so much mercy, so much grace. That started me to understand just what forgiveness and compassion and community looked like. And then I started mm. to love it and embrace it and ask for help and was willing to, you know, say yes to the food instead of like, I can do it. Well, I, I don't need your help. Thank you very much. I was like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> Come and look after the kids. We need some time away or I need some time away. And, um, and I never really felt, you know, shame um, placed on us uh, right away after, you know, he confessed and, you know, there was a, a meeting of the elders and then the, both of them had to, you know, um, make an apology to the worship team. And um, so all the, like, it was so strategic and so built in mercy. And like, we had such a safety net in which to fall into that it could only have been God ordained. And I really, I'm, I'm so truly grateful for that experience because I know some people don't have that same experience. Mm -hmm. And I think the church community really is a, a place. It's a hospital for broken souls, for people who are going through hard things. It's not a palace for perfect posers, you know, like, and if it is get out of that church, that's what I would really advise people. Do not do that. If you feel like if you brought your worst sin, you know, uh, to the, to the leadership team or to, to others and they shunned you for it, get out of that church. That is yeah. not, is not the message of Jesus. That is not God's heart. Uh, we are all capable of really terrible sins and mm -hmm. yet um, having compassion and the ability or desire to forgive, even when it's so hurtful and it's so, it's, it, it, you know, I wanted to keep bringing it up to my husband because I wanted to like shove his mm -hmm. face into the pain of what I was feeling until I realized it's not helping. Like he doesn't even, he's not even um, dealing with it the same way that I am. So my understanding of forgiveness, which I did right away, by the way, because it was like, oh, well, God tells me I have to forgive. So if I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of a Christian am I if I don't forgive right away? Because of course I've made mistakes and I like, I forgive you. I forgive her done. Yeah. Right. Like it was like, okay, what's next? And it doesn't work like that. It is such a process. Every time new information came up or I would discover something or I would be hurt over and over again. I was like, well, that piece needs to be forgiven. I need to go through the process of grieving that piece of it. So I went through the shock and I went through the bargaining. I went through the anger and I went through the sadness in order to get to the acceptance of it. And it wasn't a one and done. It was so many layers, so many different things. Every time I'd ask a question, he was honest and like, "Ugh, I got to forgive that part of it. And it was, it was exhausting. Like it truly is a difficult, difficult time that you need to have self-compassion to and not feel like you have to continue to do all the things. Thankfully, I had a boss who understood because I went to her and said, this is what's going on. The HR department at my company said, you know what? Take the time that you need. Um, this is grief. You're going through loss, yeah. loss of a marriage I thought I had. We were trying to put it back together and it's exhausting if you don't have the support system, the scaffolding, if you haven't invited that into your life, you will flail. 
it'll be right. so and, more and Stephanie, difficult. I think, yeah, and I think those are key things as we wrap up our conversation. I think there's so many parts of this story. It's an incredible story of how you made it through. And I think there's so much about the honesty and the hard work and the community and the church. And, you know, I, and I, I really think, you know, I mean, with your with your husband, if he wasn't willing to put the work in, uh, you know, I don't think this marriage would have happened and 20 years later, here you are. But I think, you know, if you were gonna just sort of, as we wrap it up, give sort of maybe three points of, of how to ensure, uh, you know, for our listeners that they are strengthened as they struggle through a marriage, or if, if they're in a place where you were, and are like, you know, my, my, my husband, my wife, my partner has had an affair. What, what would be sort of the top three things you would say that you must do to, to kind of get through this, uh, get through this moment? Yeah. I know it's only three. It's hard, but I mean, and, and, and you've said a lot in that there's a lot of points, but what would you say what your top mm-hmm. three would be? Yeah, I think number one, having the willingness, um, to invite others into your restoration process. That's good, yeah. Be able to, um, you know, be transparent uh, with yourself, um, with your spouse, and with the people who are coming alongside to help you. The other thing that I would truly recommend is make sure you surround yourself with people who are supporting you in the way you want to go. Because there, I could have found a lot of people who would say, you know what, you have every right to leave the son of a gun. <laughs> you know, like, why are you with him? And I could have surrounded myself with those types of people. Um, and they would have influenced my decision. But right away, we decided we were only going to share our story and be with people who were supportive of our decision, which was trying to stay together. Um, and so those were the... And, as soon as somebody was like, you know what I would do, and it wasn't in line with what we wanted, I'd say, thank you so much for, you know, for your opinion. Um, I trust that that's something that, you know, you really believe in, but that's not what we want. That's not where we're going. So only surround yourself with people who are lining up to the vision you have for your life and for your marriage. And the other thing I would say is um, even even before you know, this, this happens, if there are red flags, to be courageous enough to have that conversation and to do it from I and me statements, not in, you know, in an offensive, shaming, blaming way of pointing a finger going, when you do this and you do that and I and you and you, because that just triggers us to get defensive and to try to, you know, protect ourselves, but instead to right. come humbly humbly humility is a really big ingredient to a successful marriage but to say hey i'm struggling with something and here's what it is and it's really hard for me to have this conversation because i don't want to upset you and i don't feel like i want to do it and i'm really nervous but i've sensed something in myself or in you i i feel like you know what i am i i'm disconnecting from you in an emotional way. And I actually am starting to share some of my personal life with my guy friend or, you know, with my, my female at work. And I don't want it to lead to anything. Therefore, I'm sharing it with you, hun. 
because I want to bring us into it together so that we can manage this together. And I'm not saying it because I want you to get worried or upset, but I want you Mm -hmm. to be able to know what I'm dealing with. I would say that would be honestly number one. And I think if we had done that with many things in our life, um, we probably wouldn't be in the situation that we're in, but we are, you know, like I can't, I can't continue to say, why me, why me, why me? It's like, oh, why not me? God, how are you using this? Yeah, the transparency. That's good. Well, Stephanie Mm -hmm. Rourke Jackson, thank you so much. That was a tremendous story and so much uh, that I learned and and I took lots of notes. Uh, And I think for our listeners too. Yeah, I think for our listeners too that it's really – it's really helpful. And I think in so many areas, whether you're in it or you're out or you're starting, you had some really great things uh, to just help it, help us, to strengthen us, to encourage us in our journey. So thanks so much for being with us here on See Here Love. I so appreciated you being a part of our series of SOS, Summer of Strength. And I know that your story has strengthened so many who have listened today. So thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Stephanie Rourke Jackson. Wow. So many layers of that story and her journey through infidelity uh, with her husband. Um, Just so raw. And I hope that you had a pen and a paper and you were taking some notes. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm still processing about just all the things that she said. And... Now her and her husband um, are together and doing well and serving well. So it's really incredible. And uh, I I believe that just what she shared uh, really got me thinking about, you know, empathy and perseverance and just how God can redeem such broken situations. So thank you so much, Stephanie. Well, Next up, my conversation with Deborah Folletta, a licensed professional counselor who specializes in dating, marriages, and relationships. And she's here with me to talk about uh, the four areas in which we need to keep our marriage thriving and flourishing, but not just our marriage, but ourselves. And so definitely get out your pen and paper again or your iPhone or whatever you write on to take notes because I did. And Deborah has a lot of great things, very practical things to say on how to have great relationships. And if you're single and you're listening, she's got some great, great thoughts on how to be a strong, self-assured and confident single person in this season. So uh, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Can't wait for you to meet Deborah as I did. And so here is my conversation with Deborah Folletta. Well, I'm so glad now I am joined with Deborah Folletta, a professional counselor, national speaker, host of her incredible podcast, Love and Relationships with Deborah Folletta. She's the author of the book, True Love Dates, 21 Days to Jumpstart Your Love Life and Choosing Marriage. You are one busy woman, Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sure seems like that when you when you list all those things. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you're here because, you know, we just talked to Stephanie Jackson, who shared really honestly and courageously about her marriage, her husband's affair, and the long road to building trust and recovery. 
And so, you know, I'm inspired by her story. And and now I want to talk with you, Deborah, because we're, you know, we've been through a pandemic. We need our marriages strengthened. We need help on how to strengthen our marriages and also how to strengthen our singleness. And you are yeah. like the expert. We've, you know, we looked across North America and you were the one, Deborah, <laughs> that we were like, we got to bring her on and uh, get some help. So let's talk about marriage. I think it's because when I talked to Stephanie, you know, one thing that struck me, and I'm married too, is marriage takes work. <laughs> yeah, sure does. You know, it? so what would be some of your tips, tools, resources to really help strengthen marriage that's really struggling today? Yeah, I like that you say marriage takes work. And I think a lot of people struggle with that phrase. They don't want to hear it. But if we think about it, I mean, Anything that you get a license for out there in the world takes training, you know, like just Mm -hmm. to get a driver's license is a hundred hours here in the States, you know, to get a counseling license took me 3,500 hours of work. My husband to get his medical license, it took 20,000 hours, but marriage, one of the most important decisions you go in to get your license, you sign a paper. And there's no training involved whatsoever. That's true. Which is crazy because why then do we assume just because we're Christians, we're going to be good at it? Why do we assume that just because we're Christians means we're going to be healthy emotionally and mentally and relationally? I mean, that's not how it works. And we don't make that assumption with other areas of our life. We don't assume that when we become Christians Our blood pressure is going to be just right. Our cholesterol is going to be just right. But we make that assumption relationally, emotionally, mentally. Mm -hmm. So I think first and foremost, it requires us to take a step back and really ask, what's the work that I'm putting into becoming healthy, standing alone? And I think this applies to singles and married couples. A lot of times when a marriage couple, a married couple will come into my counseling practice asking for counseling. They want to work on the marriage right away because that's the natural Mm -hmm. desire. Like, let's just fix this. But usually I'll stop and have them both take a look at their own individual health. Like, how are you standing alone? Because your health standing alone is going to dictate what you do, how you interact in a relationship. Your health determines the health of your relationship. And so whether you're single or married, this applies in the sense that we need to start looking inward and start to do that work in our own lives and in our own heart. So what would be the first thing? So I'm like, and I love that, that you like validated when I said (laughs) marriage takes work. So, you know, here I am, I'm in a marriage and I'm real, I'm listening to you, Deborah. I'm like, okay, I'm going to take some of my own ownership on this. What would be the first thing that I should ask myself or do? That's such a good question. So I like to break this down into four different areas just to make it a little bit more practical. You know, Mm -hmm. Jesus calls us to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's break that down. Heart refers to our emotional health, soul, our spiritual health, mind, our mental health, and strength refers to our physical health. I mean, sometimes I think We take all of that stuff for granted. And if you were to come into my office for a session, the first thing that I would have you do is to kind of start working on your emotional health by having you draw me a timeline. 
Draw me a timeline of events from, from as far back as you can remember to today of things that have impacted you along the way, things that have shaped you, things that have made you who you are today. And when we look through that timeline, many of us, in fact, most of us will realize that we've got things from childhood that have impacted us along the way. And those things in the past influence how we do relationships in the present. For example, that woman who comes from a family where the father was not very emotionally present, you know, just kind of absent. We call him emotionally unavailable. He wasn't there for her emotionally. Well, that's going to affect the type of relationships she engages in the present because she's probably going to find herself attracted to people who also aren't emotionally available because for her, that's the norm. That's what's familiar. And I think sometimes we tend to do what's familiar over what's healthy, you know? Oh, that's good, Deborah. That's actually, that just went bing. So we do what's familiar rather than what's healthy. Right. Wow, that's powerful. And so looking mm. through at our past is, yeah. is, a, is a huge component to figuring out our emotional health and good. why we do what we do, the patterns that have been passed down to us. You probably know this, Melinda, but I just wrote a book called Are You Really Okay? And it's, it's really challenging us to get real about how we're doing emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically. Because I think people think that time is just going to get us there. Like, <laughs> oh, we'll just let the passing yeah. of time happen. Like 2020, there was a lot of distress in 2020, right? Oh, yes. It was a hard year for so many people. And if we just assume that the passing of time is going to get us to a better place. We're wrong mm -hmm. because time alone doesn't heal wounds. We have to be intentional about doing that work. I like that. So emotional. I love that part. And I like how you broke that down. So what about mental? Yeah, mental health is a, another big component. And there's two aspects to mental health. Um, first and foremost, I would say taking inventory of our thought life. You know, oh, that's good. Yeah. like what are my thoughts? What kind of filter do I see life through? Are my thoughts, do they tend to be positive or negative about the world, about me, about my situation, about my spouse? Uh, you know, what kind of insecurities do I carry? Because all of that is our mental health. All of that adds to our mental health. Mm -hmm. And we have these patterns of thinking that we don't even recognize. Sometimes it's almost like a CD player. It's on repeat in our brain. We've got to stop and take inventory of the health of our thoughts because that actually impacts our body. When we talk about mental health issues like depression and anxiety, okay. our thoughts can actually begin to change the chemical makeup in our body. And those negative, stressful thoughts, those, those emotions that we just talked about earlier, if, we, if left undealt with, begin to actually impact our body and cause things like anxiety, clinical mm -hmm. depression, panic attacks, and, and impact the way we do relationships. That's the key here. We're talking about how do we make our relationships healthy? We stop and make sure that we're working on our personal health first. That's good. So we've got emotional and mental, and then you've taught physical. And I like that because, you know, I think, Deborah, for a lot of us, we don't, go through those emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical. Like sometimes we just focus on one and we're like, ah, the other ones don't really matter. They don't really impact right. me or connect with me, right? And it's really great for you to say this again and reiterate to us 
that it's it's all four that need to be healthy together. So physical, and some people are like, oh, that means I have to exercise every day. Like, what does physical health mean? Believe it or not, when I tackle physical health in the book, I actually don't just talk about nutrition and exercise. Obviously, that's a part of it, right? We have mm-hmm. to take care of our bodies. Our body is a temple. So I talk about nutrition, exercise, sleep, those typical things. But there's more to it than that. There's understanding that you have a capacity of output. And if you are not filling yourself up, you are going to burn out. We talk about self-care. And I think for some Christians, that word kind of freaks them out, you know, but self-care is not an (laughs) anti-Christian word. In fact, it's something that Jesus did. He took the time to set boundaries around his life to say no at different points, to get away and rest, to eat, to sleep. Like he took the time to care for the temple that God has given him so that he could be the best at pouring out. And so when we look at that model, we see so many of us in, especially in Christian culture, I think we tend to to have this high capacity where we just want to do, 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 do for the kingdom of God, do, 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 do for the glory of God. (laughs) And then we burn out and we see leaders in the church falling from the height of ministry because they weren't healthy. They weren't taking care of themselves. They were living on E, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and we're not being as effective. And so part of physical health is also setting boundaries, pruning your schedule, making sure that you recognize the signs of burnout so that you're at a healthy place and are able to pour out to the people that God has put in your life. I am so glad, Deborah, you said that, you know, this has come up in a a number of conversations with my girlfriends and leaders here in Canada, you know, especially leaders who work in ministry or pastors, because it seems like either ourselves or our culture or our church congregation help to drive us to not take care of ourselves physically, like just keep working. There's so many more people that need to hear about Jesus. You got to keep going. You've got to be available 24 seven, the expectation that people right. have on us is is insurmountable and too much. And You're sometimes, Deborah, right. it's, it's myself too, or it's us where it's like, okay, I feel that, so therefore I should be that. And yeah. I, and you probably know too, I have so many, and I did. I mean, I had a real burnout and depression, you know, years and years ago because what they what came about was I was just had too much on me that I could not emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically carry it. It was, it was too much of a burden of all the things I was carrying. And I literally had a burnout and crash in, in, in like the height of ministry. So that's so good that you say that because I think we need to be told that and, and, and have the warning sign on that because it's, it's not healthy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so many people do struggle with this and, and not only that, but when we find ourselves overdoing it, instead of culture pulling us back we actually get affirmed and praised for it. Yes. Oh, you're killing it. You're grinding, you know, good for you. When you're really dying inside, you know? Mm -hmm. So for us, physical health is also being in tune to our level of fullness Mm -hmm. on a regular basis. When we talk about emotional health, mental health, spiritual health, physical health, I think, you know, we we go to the doctor on a regular basis to get physical checkups, even if we don't want to. (laughs) Right. But how often do we stop and really do an emotional checkup, a mental checkup, you know, mm-hmm. a spiritual checkup, mm-hmm. a boundaries checkup? How often do we really stop 
to prioritize that. That's why I say we think we're okay until we're not. Yeah. But exactly. but I don't think it's necessary for us to get to that point of breakdown and burnout to do things differently. Mm-hmm. I think we can look at it through the lens of preventative maintenance. Like, what can I do now to keep myself at a healthy place? Even if you think yeah. you're doing well, what can you do to take the next step of wellness and health, you know? And what I love about this is that, you know, I start with my question to you, Deborah, about marriage. But imagine if everybody individually did this. That's exactly <laughs> and, right. And I see what you're saying now, right? It's like every individual takes this responsibility, emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical health. Then when we come together or as we are together, two healthy people living together, having a healthy relationship versus two broken people and burnt out people trying to carry a marriage, manage kids, household, live a flourishing life and not a depressed life. I can totally see the problem. I can see the breakdown. Because our relationship is only going to be as healthy as the weakest link in the relationship, right? right? That's our relationship can't get any more than that. And so it's our duty. Even going back to emotional health, you know, part of emotional health is understanding those past patterns. But part of it is also being in tune to what I'm feeling and being able to express it, being able to deal with those emotions in a healthy way. That's a huge part of relationships. If you think about it, it's the giving and taking and receiving of emotions. It's all these emotional exchanges that you're having where you get hurt, offended, feel insecure, frustrated. And to be able to get to the point where I recognize my emotions And I can express them in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. You know, how will that begin to impact my relationships? But so many people are stuck emotionally because of their past stuff that they don't even recognize is holding them back. You know, that's really And so that's why with marriage counseling, of course, there's strategies and techniques when it comes to managing conflict and, you know, having healthy conversations. But none of that stuff is going to work if our core isn't healthy, it's all just mm-hmm. band-aids that we're putting on and wondering why this stuff isn't fixing my relationship, you know? Right. Now I know we kind of just sort of like said spiritual, but we didn't really kind of delve deep into that because all of this sounds spiritual, to be honest, like everything about what you're saying, even within the physical sounds very spiritual boundaries. If you look at Jesus life, he had some boundaries. He left the crowds and went to rest he partied, he had fun, and then he said <laughs> no, and he retreated. Like, I mean, his whole yeah. life was a real, I love, it's a fascinating life of Jesus when you look at how he he lived. But what would you say spiritually would be some steps to, to become more healthy in that in that area? I'm glad you asked, because I think a lot of times people, people misunderstand spiritual health, and they see it as a checklist of things that we mm-hmm. do for God, right? Reading yeah. my Bible, praying, going to church, doing ministry. But we can do all those things and not be spiritually healthy. It's not the checklist that makes us healthy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm talking about with spiritual health is really comes down to my view of God and my view of self. Let me tell you a, a story. It's good. One time I was working at a psychiatric unit with adolescents and it was at a, in a hospital setting and I was in charge of this young teenage boy who had some psychosis. Psychosis is when you hear and see things that aren't really there. And he was having some struggles. So I was there to do an assessment for him and I was wearing pearl earrings. And I have this nervous habit of like twisting my earrings sometimes while I'm talking. 
Well, while I was doing that, he just looked at me with this terrifying stare and started screaming at me. You ruined my life. I hate you. And he started coming towards me to attack me. They had to call a code. They brought in security. I mean, it was one of those scary ordeals. Well, later on, we find out that this young man comes from a home with an extremely abusive mom. And she had a a habit of twirling her earring. Ah. So the second he saw me doing that, he took all of his rage and anger and brokenness and hurt and put it on me, the innocent bystander. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing about it. We call that transference in counseling. But so many times we transfer our past hurts onto the face of God. You know, maybe we grew up with a mother who wasn't really there for us or a father who is like my way or the highway strict or or a pastor who Mm -hmm. who caused abuse in some way. And we take those wounds and we put them on the face of God and we view God through this lens of he's apathetic or he's got too many rules or he's judging me, you know, or he can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about our spiritual health, what we're really talking about is Is there anything blocking me from how I see God? Is there anything inhibiting the way that I see my own identity? You know, because that's the core of being healthy people is seeing God in the way that he's meant to be seen for who he really is. That is so good. And I mean, I know this sounds so funny, Deborah, but God's probably like, yay, finally. Finally, somebody's saying this because it's like, stop blaming me. Stop blaming me. It's not me. It's your dad. It's your, uh, you know, it's your family of origin. It's it's the past. I mean, and I say this like this, but those are my conversations with God, Deborah. Sometimes I'm like, are you okay? I love that. Yeah, God, are you okay? Am I doing something that's really about me and not about you? Uh, But I think that's important again. I think a lot of times, and I think that's where a lot of blocks you're right to having a relationship a full relationship with jesus god yeah it's because and and why they don't a lot of people that i know don't is because they are projecting all the stuff from other people and church and hurts onto god and going you know that's god and i don't want anything to do with it and god's like that's and not you don't at even all. have to come from a, a toxic family to deal with this stuff i come from a family of immigrants they were they came from another country and they worked so hard and Mm. somewhere along the way i sort of adapted the false belief that to be a good christian meant to do well to work Uh, hard to do for god it it took god to break me in order for me to realize like i am loved without doing a thing i am loved because of what god has done for me and i come from a good christian home Mm-hmm. But that just goes to show you like these, these these narratives are things that we might even have without realizing. And you don't have to come from a toxic home to struggle with your belief about God. Yeah, that's so good. So we've got these four areas and I just learned a lot. I was, I was taking notes too uh, because, you know, again, before we even say let's have a healthy marriage and let's be a healthy single, it's like let's be a healthy you as the person and that, and that, you know what, that just goes into every relationship, Deborah. I mean, that's colleagues and work as a leader in your community, within your family. Like if we were all, you know, committed to working at these, imagine all of our relationships 
you know, that we have. So, okay. So for marriage, we come in both, you know, um, you know, those in the marriage come and say, okay, I'm choosing to, to work on these, these four things. And I would say that that would, that would really make a, a good successful marriage. <laughs> I know. My husband, we Chris, and myself. counseling right there. <laughs> you're done a job. You're gone. <laughs> you're out of a job. Deborah, I know. And I actually say if, if we want to see less of a need for marriage ministry, let's start by pouring into singles and helping them get healthy. Because oh, I think so sometimes good. the church, we jump into marriage ministry. There's so much marriage ministry stuff out there. But think about how much out there is there for helping singles get healthy and, not and a pouring lot. into them while they're single. There's not much. No, there's not much. But that's where we really have to begin. And when I started my website, truelovedates.com, it was actually a website for singles, giving them relationship advice while they're standing alone. Because I really think it starts there. I really believe that even in my own marriage today, when my husband and I are facing a conflict, we're butting heads, there's tension. Usually that means one or the other of us is not at a healthy place. Like we've got to mm-hmm. confess something before the Lord because we're struggling with something as individuals and it's coming out in the context of how we're doing relationships. Oh, that's good. Why, why do you think that is for singles? And you know, I have a lot of single girlfriends and, you know, let alone a pandemic, but just life in general, you know, doing life by yourself, um, not having a partner or somebody to go even just to like the movies or to just be with on a Saturday night. Like, it's, it's hard and difficult. And then the pandemic comes and it, it isolates you even more. But, you know, I want to be, you know, our show, Deborah, has always been ensuring that single people have a voice. We always do shows on that. I, and I guess two questions. Number one, why are we not doing more single support? And then I think second, what I think just even hearing you now, a single can go, man, I need to work on those four things. Like, yes. As a single person, I if if I'm working on my emotional and mental and spiritual and physical health, I may not feel, I'm just saying this, feel as needy that I need someone. I might not feel so possibly, right? I mean, we all need relationships, but maybe those gaps and those deep losses might not be so strong if we really focus and worked on those areas in our life. I'm just saying, I totally I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. Okay. I agree. And I also think one of the ways that we heal is through the context of healthy relationships, not just romantically, yes, but community. Yeah. I mean, when we have when we have relationship wounds from from unhealthy relationships, many times we can move in the direction of healing by having healthy relationships, mm-hmm. healing relationships. Obviously, not no individual can heal you. But God can use the dynamic of that relationship to, as like a balm on your wounds, you know, to help you. And that's the beauty of community. That's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. What One thing you said is, why don't we, as a, as a big C church, mm-hmm. tend to focus on that? Well, I think historically speaking, when we even look a few hundred years ago, people used to get married at a pretty young age. It was kind of like for survival, right? You finish... You, you, you finish school, if at all, you know, you're helping your family on the farm, you've, you, you're doing your job. And then in order for you to start your own life, you get married. Mm-hmm. So years and years ago, people are finishing their schooling and then getting married right away. 
And that's kind of how you survived. I feel like we've kind of modeled our structure in the church around that timeline of, okay, so we're going to do college and college ministry. (laughs) And then we've got our marriage ministry after that. But singles are not getting married young this day and age. And I actually think it's a good thing. I think it's slowing us down. I think it's causing people to realize they need to be mature and prepared. Um, I think the divorce rates have scared many people into thinking, wait a second, maybe I need to get more ready than my parents were, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there's a lot of reasons why people are waiting to get married, but we've got to keep up with what's happening today. And because there's so many singles from age 20 to 40, 40 plus, I think we've got to do a better job of being there for singles. And honestly, one thing that I do when I travel around to different churches is to kind of explain the message that if we want healthy marriages, we've got to start with healthy singles. And this is really time well spent, energy well spent, ministry well spent, when we can focus on our singles because they're the future, you know, they're the future families. I think that's encouraging. And for all the singles out there who are listening, I think that is encouraging to say, okay, you know, work on yourself. I think the, you know, in these four areas, I think that's fantastic. I also think it's a call, you know, uh, Deborah, to me and to people who are married that, you know, we, we, it's, it's big community and big C church. You know, we, we don't go, okay, now we're all just married and we hang out in our married clubs. We, we should be multi-generational, you know, you know, groups and small groups and communities where, where everybody's a part of dinners and hangouts and right. everything. So nobody feels alone. I think that that is one of the challenges I've seen in churches where they've created groups like here are the singles, here's the women's group, here's the men's group and the seniors group. Right. I'm not quite sure that's the way. I, I really believe, you know, as you're talking, Deborah, it's, we should actually have all of us together so we can mentor we can we can share together we can talk there can be moms and dads and aunties and uncles and singles and married and you know divorced and you know all kinds together so we can learn together and and be together i i think that that could be one of the big answers for some of a lot of our the problems of loneliness isolation and disconnection yeah i love that i love that and when I, when I travel to different countries, I do notice that the countries that are better with community, like the Middle East, for example, their, single, their singles aren't feeling as isolated and as desperate to get married. Because when you feel desperate, you're going to enter into a desperate relationship. That's just how it works. You attract what you believe you deserve. And when you're desperate and isolated and lonely, those are the times that you make your worst relationship choices, you know? Yeah. So what does that look like for us in the context of community? Because part of gathering community around me is a big part of spiritual health as well. Mm-hmm. No, it's good. And I will say this, when I went through a very sort of public divorce, it, now it's 12, 12 years ago. And so, you know, I'm in ministry. My husband decides to leave greatest thing that helped me that that got me to where I am today that I didn't lose sight of Jesus that I didn't get kicked off the platform that I'm still doing national television and and you know and a podcast I'm still in ministry is community it Mm. really was I mean family for sure but my church community brothers and sisters were the ones who were like we will not 
let you down. We will have you. We will carry you. We will wow. ensure that you are not alone, that you will be restored, that you will, you know, get healing, whether they had to take me to my counseling sessions or call me, whether they gave me jobs, whether they said we will not shoot our wounded and we will not kick you off of Christian national TV, we will ensure that you will be healed and restored. Now, yeah. I am very, I, you know, Deborah, I sit, you know, I am, that's not everybody's story and a lot of people's stories in ministry when things like that happen. So I know that mine is sometimes, you know, is an exception in a lot of ways, but I, I realize, and I, maybe that I believe that's the story that God's given to me to say, you know, announce and proclaim when community rallies for the single, for the single again, this is what can happen. I, I, I am still here. And I say that I am still here because of that commitment and love from community. And so I, I totally understand that. I totally get that. And I, and I keep saying when I go and speak, I'm like to the church, you have to be the church. This is not mm. about taking people out or judging. This is all about grace and love and healing. And you're the people to do it. I you love know, that. You're That's the people so to powerful. Do it. That yeah, is so, so, so powerful. You know, so, I, I also feel like it's helpful for us as we're talking about community to also talk about the role of Christian counselors, because that is I part of them. community, yes, right? It's having people me. to surround you mm-hmm. and to, to guide you and to hold your hands up and to give you perspective when you're struggling. And I know I'm a Christian counselor. I'm a licensed therapist, so I'm probably a little biased. <laughs> but, it's okay. <laughs> but I, I just be. believe in the power of therapy, and I've seen it in my own mm-hmm. life, especially from someone who is a Christian, but holds a license to counsel people that's been trained, you know, to really walk you through this stuff. I think sometimes people look at counseling kind of like this, this, this negative, like I'm sick, something's wrong with me. I don't want to go to counseling. But what if we were to start seeing counseling, like going to the gym, I'm going to strengthen my emotional and mental and relational Mm -hmm. muscles. I'm going to work on these things. Um, Because I think changing our perspective can really influence the way that we see it and our willingness to engage in it and and just to decrease the stigma in general with this stuff. I 100% agree. You know, Deborah, when I go out and speak, I say, yes, family, community, I actually have a great doctor and an incredible counselor and therapist. I could not have Mm. gotten through my depression or through my divorce or through a lot of things in my life without somebody who was an expert that was a counselor and therapist to get me through because I couldn't think of that stuff on my own. I didn't understand. I could say something, but I needed somebody to kind of guide me to say, actually, this, that's a deeper thing, Melinda, or that is family of origin, or that is a familiar pattern that you're choosing versus something that's healthy, like what you're saying, Deborah. And so I am a huge, I will tell anybody, I've actually sent probably 15 people to my Christian therapist. That's amazing. I love her, Iris, a huge shout out to Iris. Um, But she has single-handedly helped many in my community find our way and and give voice and words to what we we didn't know what we were feeling and then see healing happen. Absolutely. I'm I'm so glad you are. I'm so glad you are. Like- That's so wonderful. I'm proud of you for for using your story to just bring healing and perspective because when you see somebody who's been through it it gives you the courage to say okay you know what maybe i can do this as well 
you know, one more thing I wanted to to add, mm-hmm. like as a therapist, I I wrote Are You Really Okay as a therapist, but I also wrote it as a person who's been there myself, mm-hmm. struggled with depression, with panic attacks, with anxiety, with trauma that I had to deal with and with engaging in the process of getting healthy emotionally, mentally, physically and spiritually, like all of it. Just because I'm a counselor doesn't mean I'm immune to mental and emotional health issues, just like a doctor isn't immune to getting sick. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just part of being human. And I, my hope for the message is that people don't just read it and just move on, but mm-hmm. like interact, grab a journal, do the questions, dig deep. See it as a, a 12 chapter counseling session where you're diving into your past and really getting real about who you are and how you're doing and, and what God has for you. That's really my hope. But I say that as a person who's been through it, not just a quote unquote expert. You can't really become an expert unless you've walked <laughs> through it yourself, right. you know? Yes. Deborah is amazing. And I so appreciate it. You know, I love how it's like, help us be strengthened in our marriage and singleness. And then it's like, wait a second, let me help you be strengthened is yourself. And then you can you can you can really then see you know your marriages become strengthened and flourishing and as a single person um, maybe not see what you don't have but what you do and so thank you I thank you not only for being a host of a podcast but an author uh, for just your honesty and I know our listeners you know this is about a series on SOS Summer of Strength and I think you've really given us a lot of tools and inspiration to help us be strengthened, uh, not in, only in our marriage and singleness, but with ourselves too. So thank you so much for being, being thank with me today. Thank you. I love this series and I love what you're doing and I'm so thankful to be a part of it. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Becca again. I really enjoyed this episode, Melinda. Great job interviewing Stephanie and Deborah. Stephanie's story is heartbreaking yet so inspiring. But as someone who is still single, I really got a lot from Deborah Falera. And I'm actually really excited to start working on my health physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally so that I can enjoy better relationships with my family and my friends. Well, back to you. Thanks, Becca. I love your thoughts to and review of the show. Plus, I love how you just interrupted me <laughs> in the show too. But thanks for your thoughts. And I, I would say my, my takeaway again is that relationships take hard work. I think what I've learned, and especially for me uh, in a second marriage in a blended family, some of the things that I've learned, you know, going through my own separation and divorce is that, you know, communication is key and critical. Honesty with your partner is also key and critical. Uh, Sharing how you're doing, what's not working. I think one of the biggest things in hearing this conversation is that, why should we be afraid of our spouse in sharing our honest thoughts? And if, if, if our partner and spouse are not safe spaces and places to share, then we might need to take a step back and just sort of think about why not. I think that it, just the, the commitment part is something to, to, to land on and think about when you make a vow and covenant, what that means. But also I think that for any single person, you know, marriage has other challenges and it takes work. It's not just coming into something and now we're married, we have a great big wedding and it's about the party, but that marriage takes a lot of sacrifice and 
self-sacrifice and yet there is something hard and beautiful about what that means to be in a relationship and live out love and unconditional love. So there's a lot, there's a lot to process. I still have a lot to process through these conversations, but I did like Deborah talking about what it means to have a good marriage means that you as an individual, as a person yourself, need to really prioritize and work on being healthy and strong physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Those are four important parts of us being a whole person. And so if one is off balance, then maybe today is the day for you to focus on that. If we're not doing well physically, we need to look at that. If you're not doing well mentally, you need to look at that or emotionally or spiritually. And so Deborah gave some really great uh, tips on what we can do. And so that's what our hope is, you know, as we, as we go about this SOS series to strengthen you in these areas. And so I hope these two conversations with Stephanie Rourke Jackson and Deborah Fletta strengthen you in your marriage, strengthen you, strengthened you in your relationships and strengthen you in your singleness. And that is our hope. And as we go, I know this. It's like a blessing almost. Like it's like a prayer I want to share with you. You know, be strong and be brave. And know that God is for you and with you always. Thanks for joining us today. with Melinda Estabrooks is a production of Crossroads Christian Communications Incorporated, a member of the Canadian Council of Christian Charities. To support this program, please visit seeherlove.com and click the donate button or call 1-800-265-3100. And from me and the See Here Love team, thanks so much for your support.